0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode eight of the Ascent of Board Games. Yes, we haven't been able to shut up yet, or rather, the man hasn't been able to shut us up yet. We're still at it. I'm Brian. Frank. Joe. Jason. Michael. Somebody can say more than one word at a time. That's awesome. So, this episode, we are going to talk about something that was pretty popular on our poll, which is on ascentofboardgames.com, which you should all go and fill out if you haven't already. And this is an episode on great gimmicks. And the idea is basically that game that just has a really cool thing that makes the game either possible or awesome or interesting. Certainly there are a lot of things we've talked about in previous episodes that would qualify, like a lot of the batteries included stuff. During the 60s and 70s, the fact that there was something electronic in your board game was a gimmick. The Dark Tower in Dark Tower is the ultimate great gimmick in a game. That was pretty great. So there's that. Also, it occurred to me that a lot of times game mechanics or styles start out as a gimmick. So like when Risk Legacy first came out, you know, what, you you, you tear up cards and you put stickers on the board and you write on the board? Heresy! I know. (laughs) That was a gimmick and now it's a genre.
1: We went in and took out a few categories, I think children's games.
0: Yeah, because... A lot of children's games, functionally, the gimmick is the game.
1: Yeah, true. And de- dexterity games as well, because, well, there's a million of them.
2: Yeah, and many of them are super clever. Let's face it, dexterity games also are just going to get an episode all into themselves. That's probably going to
0: have to be an episode with video. Honestly, this episode, there's going to be a lot more pictures and some video than usual, because we're going to sit here trying to describe these things in words And it's not always going to be easy to do. So just look for pictures and stuff in the show notes and on Instagram because we got a lot of stuff.
2: I mean, Brian, that's just more reason to go visit our website. Exactly. What was that website again, Mike? Ascentofboardgames.com. Excellent. But Um, seriously, do not listen to this episode without going to any of our internet resources and checking out some of our videos and pictures because our words just cannot do these games justice. Nothing that we've
0: said here is going to make any sense without the visual references there
2: like a couple
0: of our previous episodes this one is less a chronology of development and more here's some cool stuff we promise we're going to get back to the more evolutionary stuff real soon probably with our next episode but in the meantime we're just gonna talk about some games we know about that seem cool
1: so yeah uh, enjoy the shotgun approach for this one
0: it's kind of like dumping a bunch of games into a big tower and seeing which (sighs) ones fall out the bottom but (laughs) we'll get there yeah
2: hey we put them in chronological order. That's true.
0: That's true.
3: They're not really connected at all because each each gimmick is functionally a island unto itself.
2: Joe, I'm the master of definitive statements, so
3: I'm <laughs> going oh, to connect wait. the shit out Make of it. Make your definitive statement now, Mike. Ooh, okay, let's see. To wait.
2: provide some context for folks,
0: <laughs> we've discovered that going back to the last several episodes, every time Mike has been making a definitive statement, it has been proven wrong. usually before the next episode Almost comes out. Almost
2: immediately. It's real <laughs> weird. Sometimes I'm within talking. seconds. I'm going to say that I will not win the lottery. Definitely will not happen. Good plan. Yep. Good plan. I like it. And Joe, that's my definitive statement. Done. I cannot wait to win. I mean not win. He ruined it. We ruined it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there goes our plush
4: recording studio
0: in
2: Barbados. (laughs) Uh. So should we talk about our first game? Let's do
4: that. Oh, I want to take it. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm super excited to talk about this game because I have not experienced a game this old that has been this entertaining for me pretty much ever. The first one we want to talk about is a game called Astron that was released in 1954 by Parker Brothers, which means we don't know who made the game because they don't like telling us that information. Essentially in this game, you're, uh, well, originally in the game, you were making a race from Earth to Saturn, and they decided apparently to do away with that. They have little, uh... Figurines, awesome painted metal 1950s style spaceships that are flying around Earth. <laughs> For whatever reason, they changed it while they're designing it. But essentially what you're doing is you're trying to land on spaces that score you points, which are specifically airports, and you're trying to avoid spaces that have hazards like storms, mountain ranges.
3: Oh, you were supposed to avoid those. <laughs> yeah, Joe, Joe didn't I do that. I see. Yeah. So you should have explained that at the beginning.
4: The gimmick about this game is the board that you are put your figures on is essentially a scrolling piece of paper, I guess it is. I don't know what it's actually constructed of. And on your turn, you play a card, and you can move your ship on the the actual grids of the board, and or you can move the mat itself. So as you're playing cards, you're kind of moving reality forward or backwards, which is hilarious when you get Joe to crash into yet another mountain. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Happened a lot.
2: Yeah. I think the amazing thing about this game was that the base mechanic of the game is just play a card, draw a card, but like the effect that those cards have on Every other player is a really interesting, no, fascinating mechanic for 1954. Like, player interaction in that game is hilarious.
0: Yeah, it's a simple game in theory, but it works out really well. Because if you play a card that's like, well, I move diagonally forward one and then move the map forward three and everyone else around the table screams in horror, it's really tremendous fun. We actually enjoyed this so much that I bought a copy on eBay The day after we finished testing it for this episode, I get the impression it didn't sell very well because it was really expensive because you have this fairly complex cardboard box with rollers inside it.
1: $2.50, that was a fortune.
0: And I imagine it was complicated to manufacture. Yeah. But it holds up well. I would take this to a, a game event and play it with people, and now I have a copy and I
2: can do that. I'm not going to lie, if I owned this thing as a kid, that would have been crushed within a week
0: (laughs) of me owning it. Yes, that's why there are so few intact copies left, and they're so expensive.
3: Yeah, it's super clever. I really do love the, when you're looking at your hand of cards, you have cards that move you forward and backwards and sideways. But then also, in addition, cards might also move the map forward or move the map backwards very occasionally. And so it's fascinating to be like, oh, well, I could move myself forward or I could move everyone (laughs) forward. What is that going to do?
0: When you land on an airport, you get a card for an arbitrary number of points. When you land on a hazard, you get a card for an arbitrary number of negative points. I think that would probably be less random if it were to be released today Actually, to make it more gamey.
1: I think it's 10 to 15 for airport and 5 to 10. Uh,
3: it goes
0: down to 2, I, it, think. It, I think. It seemed the like a larger swing than that.
1: But... No, it's pretty pretty flat.
0: So if airports are worth that much more than hazards, Joe was really bad at this game. <laughs> I was extremely, I went negative, I'm pretty sure. I, yeah, no, I, we have pictures of your yeah, score. So it was...
4: Who was it that uh, someone threaded the needle diagonally between two gigantic hazards? That, was that, that
2: would be me avoiding the tornado. Thank you. Yeah, no, that was impressive. Did someone
4: roll you back into it? He though? Did. <laughs> yeah, But for uh, for one brief shining moment, Mike was, <laughs> it was beautiful. Mike it was, was beautiful. brilliant.
2: No, no, no. It wasn't the tornado. He rolled me back into because I avoided it. He then backed me up into a mountain. No, <laughs> yes. I avoided the tornado, not the mountain. Yeah, it's yeah.
1: kind of sad when a mountain creeps up
2: on you. <laughs> yeah, from behind. Didn't see that coming. <laughs> Having heard the original idea for the theming of this game, like, I can only imagine why they did not go with a space tour, because that sounds amazing. Like, hey, who can be the first one to get to Planet X, which is right up there in the 1950s? Because wasn't that Buck Rogers? Yeah, you know, yeah. Which totally. Which the spaceships were totally right oh. from. I mean, you could roll down the convertible top on those spaceships. It would be <laughs> great.
4: I mean, come on, a Kickstarter. We can do it ourselves. Like, it's got to be in public domain by now, right? Well... <laughs> I mean, it's also going to be way
3: you easier to develop a uh, trademark uh, mechanics. Yeah, but we can use the name. You, that, you do what it on a saying.
0: tablet, ooh, and that way you can just say, "Well, now I want to do the race in space." Boop.
2: Now I'm in space.
0: <laughs> Boop. Now I'm going around the world. Boop. Now I'm underwater. No, I like it. I'm in. Guys, we have so many kickstarters <laughs> we need to do.
2: Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and just shout out trademark. Nobody can take it. <laughs> I think that's how the law works.
0: Actually, yep, yep. you just say that. Verbal's binding. It's kind
4: of like shotgun. You know, once you say it, it's it's legally done. Yep. yep. Yeah, it's funny. I couldn't figure out when this happened, but apparently at some point they changed the name of the game to Skylanes to avoid the confusion of why is this game called Astron when I haven't left the planet Earth? And the planes are still spaceships. And the planes are still (laughs) spaceships,
1: yes.
4: (laughs) I mean, they're great spaceships, don't get me wrong.
1: The next game is Avalanche from 1965. Publisher is Hasbro. Designer is Frank W. Sindon. I didn't have this game, but a friend had it uh, when I was young and played a lot of it. The top of the game board you basically drop marbles in. And you have a board that you're trying to fill with certain color marbles. And when you drop a marble in, it'll hit a switch that'll basically cause other marbles to drop, which will hit other little switches that will cause further marbles to drop. And you keep everything that falls out the bottom. So it's a game of just kind of looking at the board going, okay, if I drop there, it'll flip that, which will flip that, which will flip Oh, and I get four marbles. Maybe there's a little bit of inaccuracy in the mechanism.
0: But in theory, it should be exactly predictable. Almost always. Should
1: be, yeah. It's predictable enough that I used as a puzzle an escape room. <laughs> oh, yep. Which Fry remembers
0: yep that worked well
1: it's just a pure abstract strategy game and it feels a lot like the computer elements of some of the stuff like dr nim and the recent kickstarter that was awesome what's the name of that you're not narrowing it down for <laughs> me no not really uh i'll have to show that to you though.
2: all right listeners we need your feedback <laughs> yes, send us all of the recent awesome Kickstarters. Yes, exactly. It's bound yeah. to be one of them Oh, also, if our uh, our listeners are interested, apparently there's a browser-based version of this game. We'll add a link
4: in our show notes for that. Yeah, it's a very simple one. It's using the expert two version of the game, which I had to look up what that meant. But what what does that mean? Uh, I don't recall. It's it's on the web page for the where I found this thing.
1: I found my mechanical computer it was Turing tumble.
4: Oh, that's the one I was thinking of.
1: Yeah, totally. And I do have one of those. Of course you do. That's adorable. It's a puzzle game, designed for kids.
2: So the next game that we're going to talk about was a release in 1969, and that was called Situation 7. And this game was published by Parker Brothers and designed by Marvin Glass. And this game, I think, is the first time I've ever really enjoyed doing a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, as you're playing this game, you are working with a partner, because it's four-player, right, Right. It can be two-player. 2, two team. You are two opposed jigsaw puzzle assemblers who as you are putting your puzzle together you are claiming territory on a shared board and if you assemble a piece that is on a special space you will get that special space's power which can then block the other player from building off of your piece and like it is crazy and I'm not sure I entirely understood the process, but when we were finished, we had this great finished puzzle.
0: Yeah, functionally, there's two copies of the same puzzle. One was like blue and green and one's like purple and yellow, I think. And basically, you're both starting from the middle of your side of the board and building out from there. And if you get built out to a certain area before your opponent does, you're just taking over and getting special abilities, and it's quick and slightly manic and uh, much more entertaining as teams, I think, than two individual oh,
4: players. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. get to yell at your partner. Yeah, where's get, the stupid thing with the black hole? You observe how bad your partner is at this game. <laughs> well, um, and
2: the there are at least. Two of every board feature in the game. So like you could be like, where's the black hole? It's right here. No, the other black hole. <laughs>
4: right, yeah. exactly. Also, different sectors give you different amounts of points. That's that's actually how you win the game is by collecting the points from building those sectors and in, in your puzzle's colors. And uh I'll just say it right now, I was awful at this game. yeah just you were Incredibly bad at
2: it. Jason, who is my partner, was just like, Where's the squiggle with the thing? And I'm just like, I don't know what that means. <laughs>
4: I was the hidden trader. I didn't uh, want to tell you. Oh, so uh, you I was know. on their team. Got it. It was great. We won. Take that, Mike. And there was an earlier version. It's yeah, there was Situation four. 4. One year, okay. one
1: year earlier. Okay. Which has got a military tankish theme. Right. And that one was oh. kind of
0: square or rectangular, yeah, right?
1: Square. You actually, in that one, you start with the entire side of your board, the long side filled. Mm-hmm. And it progresses much faster because you have a lot more to build on yeah start and actually i like the round board where you start with one piece better Mm
3: -hmm. i like the artwork on situation 7 better too.
2: i don't think we actually said the theme for situation 7 is that you are building in space so in the center of the board is the sun
0: and you're capturing satellites and missile platforms
1: and astronauts and yeah 60s idea of space was missile platforms (laughs) sure because that's what you do with space yeah
3: i think the theme is super cute the artwork is super cute The next thing we want to talk about is Orion, which was uh, published in 1971 by Parker Brothers. And because they're jerks, they didn't want to tell us who designed their games. And it is a platform game. What I mean by that is the base components are pretty abstract. And then you can play a bunch of different games on top of this game. And so to kind of visualize it, imagine you have a bunch of eye-shaped pieces that go into... A... Uh,
0: rotary board? A
3: rotary board that you R- can Remember twist? what I
0: said about having to have video or pictures for this? This is going to be one of those. Yeah.
3: So... Your I-shaped pieces, which are colored, are on the board, and when you twist a segment of the board, the four surrounding pieces move clockwise or counterclockwise, depending on the way that you turn it. The game that we played during it is everyone started with a bunch of pieces on their side, and they had to make a line from their side to the opposite side of the board by doing, I think it was like three twists per turn. And they could only twist a dial if it had at least one of their pieces on it, and so you were kind of in the process of like doing a complicated dance as you're trying to slowly move your pieces across the board to create a, a single line segment across the board the game was bonkers and i, I let mike win I, I gave mike the victory very healthily. i would like to think
2: that it was my grandmaster strategy that you fell right into i did
3: i fell directly into your perfect yeah, your, your
4: grandmaster strategy was play against joe
2: Yeah, it worked (laughs) great. It worked great.
4: It was weird. Mike kept saying "checkmate in three turns." We're like, "What is he talking about?" (laughs) And every time he slipped Joe a five dollar bill, it was weird.
1: Yeah, the trippy thing about what makes Orion unique is the fact that when you move one of your pieces, you are affecting three other pieces that are generally other players, and so working out is so complex. For what's basically a simple, it would be a simple abstract
4: game. It's not. Yeah. Every time it came to my turn, I'm like, oh. I'm in a totally new game state. I have no idea what I'm going to do with my turn. like, turn this one, turn this one, turn with this, hope. Oh,
0: no. Seems like there's a lot of time vortex in that game. Oh, yeah. (laughs) An infinite amount of time vortex.
4: There
2: is. Like, you definitely can't plan out what your next move is going to be before your turn. But at the same time, since the mechanics of the game or the specific game that we played was just rotate three of these things, it didn't really feel that bad. Like, it moved at a quick pace, even though you're sitting there going like, uh, okay, cool. This one, this one, this one. Okay, your turn. And now I regret everything right. I just did. <laughs> Frank, what were some of the other games that could be played with I mean, there's a very board?
1: checkers one that involves capturing. One that involves some luck. There's obviously a Chinese checkers. We have to get all our pieces across. It's better for two because the chaos with four would be chaos. There's a fox and hounds variant. I mean, they tend to be variants on standard
4: abstract games. I did love the instruction manual though. It's a vertically bound spiral bound instruction book with all of the different uh, games in there and the art was pretty
1: great. And named after constellations because, yes, you know, they yeah, kept so with the whole funny. Orion Aquarius 70s thing. Dude. I love Parker Brothers games from that period because a lot of them are really focused for adults and they're really simple rules, but the games are actually quite sophisticated. I think it's a time that we lost, really, in mass market games.
2: But, Parker Brothers, that does not excuse not giving your designers credit, you monsters. I really hope they've fixed that. They were
1: built in the
0: game factory, Mike. (laughs) They were were hewn from the game mines. Now there's two Parker Brothers and they designed every game. (laughs) The next game we wanted to mention is one of the big classics. This is one of the ones that was in my mind when we first thought about the Great Gimmicks episode, which is Fireball Island. It was originally released in 1986, which is a little bit later than I thought. I I felt older than that for some reason. (laughs) Another Milton Bradley game from Chuck Kennedy and Bruce Lund. And this is one that in its original form is pretty much a kid's game. Basically, the titular Fireball Island is the board. And basically, you're trying to make your way up the mountain to get the giant jewel that's there. And periodically, you will have the opportunity to drop fireballs in the mountain, and it goes down a series of chutes and knocks players off the mountain. And it was basically an enormous random luck fest that looked really cool. The interesting thing is that last year, Restoration Games did a big Kickstarter of this and made it much more of a gamer's game. They put little sort of directional gates on the on, so you have a little bit of control over where the fireballs go. It's gorgeous. It's one of those games that
4: makes a statement when you put it on the table.
1: That statement is, uh... I have too much money. Oh, yeah, good point.
4: You know it's a real game now because it has multiple expansions. Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> and because Rob Davio uh, did the redesign, so yeah.
4: Wait, so there's a legacy component?
1: <laughs> no, 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 no.
4: <laughs> That's the next version oh, right. of the Legacy Firewall you I literally like, set yeah. the figures on fire. Oh, <laughs> nice,
1: okay. The game ends by collecting and going to all these sightseeing spots. There's some set collection with treasures... And, uh, yeah, there's a definite more gamery thing going.
4: There's a second board now, too, right? A pirate ship or something?
1: Yeah, that shoots and you fire a cannonball onto the <laughs> island or because something? Yeah, of course yeah. Why you not?
4: do. Because apparently
0: there are a lot of gamers who are trying to recapture their childhood with a lot of money and a lot of table space who want to shoot I, marbles I at each other. I fail to see the problem with that. I, yeah, <laughs> no, I, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's a thing that we need to be aware of.
1: So, our next game is Nessie Hunt from 1986, published by Search Glen. Designers are Anthony G. Harmsworth, famed Nessie researcher. It's And true. Bob Shine. This is a strange, strange game. that was published in Scotland, still sold in the gift shops on the shores of Loch Ness. It's about searching for Nessie, that famed crypto critter that sits at the bottom of Loch Ness or not or whatever.
4: Or it could just be a log, you know.
1: The game itself consists of a bunch of basically getting money every turn and then spending that money to try to get evidence of Nessie, to find pictures, photographs, or even capture a live Nessie. The charm of the game is that what you spend this money on are a bunch of templates that represent the fields of vision of all this equipment. You know, like a camera has a really good long template. Some of the sonar would be a weird wavy template that can go out in the middle of the lock like you're putting it on a boat. And the board eventually becomes this massive overlay of little like beams intersecting over the hex board
0: yeah they're little acetate overlays basically that you say well i'm putting a camera here so you put it on that dot on the edge of the lake and angle it to show the things that you want to see and some of them are short range wide angle some of them are very long but very narrow so you have to kind of know exactly where it is
1: and they all cost money every turn you keep them in the way nessie reappears is by a uh, track So you know the next few spaces, and there's three different tracks to represent which of the possible spaces. So you have some idea, but it also there's a limit to how much you can put out or take up every turn. So you're having to balance your income with you know, is that even going to work? No, I'm just removing that for a while.
0: Surprisingly a good game for something that is basically done as a thing to to put in gift shops.
1: Oh yeah, totally. It is ultimately Nessie Roulette, but there's a little (laughs) bit of a teeth to it. The cards that you're getting are all based on reports, pictures from the <laughs> Nessie. Uh, that's where the Harmsworth stuff comes in, because that's great. he's a collector of Nessie research.
2: I, I actually really like the idea of using these translucent templates as, like, field of view. Searchlight. Searchlight stuff. I feel like that mechanic right there would translate really well into, like, some sort of hidden movement, prison <laughs> break. Yeah, prison escape. Game.
4: yeah where, where's
1: our coldest version? Yeah, searchlight. Exactly. Like,
4: <laughs> There's one great promotional picture where I don't know who the guy is. Maybe he's the researcher, but there's a guy literally bursting out of the Loch Ness, holding the board game aloft in Triumph. It's so great. It seems like that so would great. get the game
0: really soggy.
4: Uh, maybe it was wrapped in plastic. And then on the back of the game, the picture of the family playing the board game is so delightfully old and amazing looking. (laughs) It is a
2: classic period picture. They're all having so much fun. What's really weird about this picture, though, which we will definitely post onto our show notes, Mm -hmm. is that clearly the photographer has directed both of the women in the game (laughs) to be very thoughtful in their pose, which I think they interpreted as hand on chin. Well, yeah, that's how you can tell you're thinking.
4: Ah, I see.
3: So next we're going to talk about Headquarters, which was released in 1995 by Theta, the game publisher, and uh, designed by Michael Sori. And sorry for mispronouncing your name, I'm sure. It's a fascinating game because apparently you guys are going to be all the ones that are impossible to describe. <laughs> it's a profile of a human face with a cutout in the center. And during your turn, you take... a uh, Colored cube, which is too long, and you place it somewhere where it can stand without being touched after you stop placing it in the head somewhere, you get all the points of all the cubes you can see and your opponent gets all the points all the cubes they can see so
1: any group of colors any group of together colors, yeah. scores the square of that group
3: and so obviously you know what effect you're having on your board but you don't necessarily remember the effect you're having on your opponent's side once you've placed a couple of cubes it's functionally impossible to see the cubes that are on your opponent's side anymore so there's a lot of remembering you have to do to try to remember like oh i'm gonna place this thing here and i gotta remember that's a blue and i can't place other blues by it but that's a very difficult mental map. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> you got to make a mental palace to play this game perfectly.
2: And to make matters worse, the head itself is if you can stand the cube box that you are placing upright, they are too deep. So, like, you could be like, well, I'm just going to place these upright and then who
1: knows what's up. Well, then you give your, your, your opponents
3: total control over that as well, which is both a good thing. It's a bad thing. So are you, like, randomly drawing pieces?
1: You randomly draw one okay. piece. That's the one you place.
0: Okay. Interesting. So the next one we had on our list was Tamsk, which came out in 1998 from Rio Grande, Schmitz, Biel, Don and Company. Designed by Chris Berm as part of the Gipf series of games, which is a series of very cool abstract games. If you like abstract strategy games, you've probably seen them. This one in particular is interesting because the pieces you are moving around on your little hex board are all sand timers. And basically when you move a piece... You flip it over, and if the timer ever runs out, that piece can't be moved anymore. And the idea is when you move a piece, you put a ring over it. The more rings are around a space, the more valuable it becomes. So basically, it's just adding some slightly ludicrous time pressure to an already thinky strategy game. There's not a lot more to say about it other than that's that's a really clever use of sand timers. They're not just timing how long you have to finish drawing your picture or whatever. Everything in the game is timed based on those.
1: Yeah, but there's some surprising strategies that just come out of the time aspects because I played a lot of Tomsk. And um, you can kind of wall in a piece so to make it hard to move because if a piece runs out of time, it can't move. Period. It's locked. And so you can kind of wall it in, keep it from moving. Uh, just kind of sit back and let that peace drain completely before making your move. Because as long as you make a move at some point, you can do whatever you want. So pausing and that, screwing around That seems around like
0: less of a strategy and more like being a jerk. That's just
4: me. <laughs> I hey, guess it's part of the game. It's a two-player game. Okay, you're supposed to be enough. a jerk.
2: Well, and I think that having the multiple timers at once has a bit of a spinning plate dilemma where it's like if totally. you focus too much on one timer, then you're going to lose out on the other timers, and then the time runs out. Nope, that's now permanently stuck there.
4: Do you ever okay. play this with like some people that suffer from analysis paralysis and just watch their heads explode <laughs> those people
0: don't play this game yeah. <laughs>
1: there's a bunch of games that use timers as pieces that have come out after that i mean there's a space dealer where you basically are doing a pickup to deliver but your timer pieces are all well sand timers
0: you should be used to this rank whenever you mention a game and all of us just kind of tilt our heads to the side <laughs> and look at you that means none of us have heard of it so yeah we'll good point just start explaining Next game on our list is another one that basically was one of the drivers behind this list in the first place. It is a 1999 release called Shrilla from Zachspieler, designed by Peter Wichmann. Functionally, this is a game of groupthink. Basically, each player is playing a record label and they are trying to arrange it so that the bands that they are invested in, the bands they're representing, get higher on the, the weekly top 14, which is kind of a random number. Maybe that's how they do it in Germany. I don't know. So basically each band is represented by one or two of the labels. And the way they move is each turn, everybody gets a handful of random point tokens, which can be plus or minus anywhere from like plus three to minus four points. You get little things you can bet on who's going to be number one, who's going to move the farthest up the charts, that sort of thing. And basically you assign those to various bands. The gimmick and the thing that makes the game awesome is... I'm excited. Difficult to describe <laughs> in to describe words, words without
2: I'm pictures. Excited. Right. Um, but basically, it. I think I got you. So the way that you assign pieces, you put chips into a record that is on a sandwich covered board that are labeled That's one, one through 14. No, <laughs>
3: That's not helpful. It's not helpful, <laughs> it, it's <laughs> not helpful yeah, but I don't is. think I could do any better. I'm going to try. Let, a new challenge. So you have a disc that has holes in it around for each of the positions. And you assign chips to each of the holes, and then you take the disc, and you cover it so that the chips don't move, and then you put it over a mechanism which has, in essence, columns for each of the positions, and then pull the cover away so the chips fall. And then during the resolution step, you turn this disc so each of the columns line up with the chute, and all the chips fly out the chute. Well done. No,
0: I like (laughs) that. Good job. So basically you start at the bottom of the chart and work your way up and see who's been scoring things and who's trying to push things up and who's trying to push them down. It is probably a lot more fun than we just made it sound (laughs) by describing the
2: mechanism. It is hilarious to see the the way that these things have resolved because you're like, wow. This band just went from number one to, like, negative 20. It's fine.
0: Right. There is very much a pick-on-the-leader mentality, Mm -hmm. although with our group, there seems to be somebody in every game who's—it doesn't matter that they're in last place on the scoring chart. Somebody is still
2: voting against their (laughs) bands just to be a jerk.
0: It's like, why are you doing this? I'm not competition. but Well, uh, in
2: all fairness, the the band's— can have either just a a tag for a single player, a single player's label, and several of them can share labels. Right. Most of the bands are are two colors. And for some reason, it just always seems to work out that that last player is sharing with the person in first. I don't know how that keeps happening. That seems bad.
0: But yeah, it's a lot of fun. It is well out of print. It's another one that I think would really benefit from a re-release.
1: Yeah,
2: totally. It blows my mind that this game has not had a proper American release. It really does, because that device is fascinating. It
0: is really good. I mean, I think partly it may have suffered from the same problem we were talking about with Astron. I'm sure it was expensive. That's a big honking piece of wood and a lot of...
1: No, nah, it wasn't nah. that expensive at the time. Oh, okay. Nah.
0: Maybe just Americans didn't have taste at the time.
1: I think it's actually music games. Music games don't sell well.
3: The game is literally nothing to do with I mean, you could music. Know, I know. that to could virtually anything. anything. Yeah.
2: I do think we got to clarify that the, the name of the game, is Still, is one of the bands within the game itself that can come up and it's the German translation for Shrill Silence. And so all of the bands just have these bonkers names and are clearly references to something. Well,
0: some of them are very clearly references to specific artists. Some of them are just kind of random. I mean, there's, there's one called Miami bitches (laughs) (laughs) for no apparent reason.
3: No, I think for every obvious appearance. Okay, sure.
2: There's, I know there's one in the game that is supposed to be a parody on Michael Jackson. Yep, yep, and I he's think in there's there. one on Kiss.
0: I know there's one in there called Simply Fred.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the names are in English, or
0: most
4: of the names are in English.
0: But yeah. The theme is utterly unimportant to the game, but the game itself is a lot of fun if you like that sort of groupthink kind of approach.
3: So the next game we want to talk about is Starfarers of Catan. Yes, finally, after seven episodes, we get to
0: a Catan game.
3: (laughs) Released in 1999 by Cosmos Games and designed by Klaus Teuber. And the thing I think that makes this game unique is that when you play, you have this gorgeous 1950s rocket ship in front of you that represents your ship that's traveling the universe. And as you buy upgrades for it you buy booster rockets you buy laser guns you buy carrying capacity you clip on pieces onto the ship that's sitting in front of you and then during your turn when you want to move or when you want to generate some kind of randomness you pick your ship up and you shake it and out the bottom there are four colored balls inside of your ship and there is a small translucent piece of plastic at the bottom of your ship that can contain two of those balls and so you shake your ship turn it face down And then, randomly, two of the balls will fall into that compartment, and that is you rolling your ship. And so you will roll your ship to move. You roll your ship to generate a various amount of randomness during the course of the game. Each of the colors represents a number, and you add them together. And I I think the
4: black one gives you encounters or something. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah,
3: And so it's a super cute mechanism. The ships are super cute. I actually like this game better than normal Catan, I mean, right? That's like there's not a lot more <laughs> there's a lot more space to explore, there's a lot more kind of things going on. There are aliens you can befriend and they give you bonuses.
0: Yeah, I mean it definitely has its Catan origins. The aliens are functionally like ports in regular Catan. They'll give you better trading ratios and that kind of thing. As Catan game goes, it's one of the ones I enjoy. I don't know of anyone who has this game where the spaceships are all still intact cuz no. they are.
3: Super cheap plastic. Well, okay, Frank. <laughs>
0: yeah,
4: you, Have you played it? Yeah. But if you
3: put the booster rockets in, in you, need, like, right. you need like a microsurgeon to remove them again. We literally broke a piece off while I was demoing <laughs> yes. for you guys because yeah, those things are so freaking fragile.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
3: It's the plastic clips at the bottom of the actual problem. Like if yeah. those were metal, it would be totally fine.
0: That's the actual problem. Well, clearly we need to do one of those big upscale re-releases Ooh. where the, like, the spaceships are machined brass. Nice. Yes. Yeah. You know, Ooh. with mahogany cargo yeah. rings. We need LEDs sort of too. Oh, sure. LEDs oh, yeah. definitely. I mean, so many LEDs. Up,
2: is it even worth doing no it's trash otherwise
1: although the weird little mechanism with the balls falling out the end is uh, reminiscent of an old 60s game called prize property you turn up this giant gavel with a plastic bit in the end, <laughs> and basically whether or not the property could be sold or not depending on the color of the ball that nice out. nice
0: nothing new under the sun nope all right, Frank, next one is clearly yours. Yeah. I'll...
1: That would be Master Thieves 2004, published by Zock Spiel and Rio Grande in one of Jay's weird moods. Designer is Cezarn. That's it. One name. <laughs> I did
2: not realize that this game was made by the same folks who did Troll Still. Yep. Yep. Huh. Oh, Zoc has
1: a lot of that kind of stuff. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, Master Thieves has a basic, you know, multiple choice kind of everyone picks a role people go first and you do stuff with your role the amazing part of master thieves is the
0: box and we don't mean the box the game comes in although that is very nice
1: correct but no the box is a kind of strange rubik's cube with three rotating levels drawers that slide out half of the drawers have secret compartments in the back the drawers are all double-sided and gems will fall out during the game you end up manipulating this box by turning the levels turning the entire box over putting stuff in the secret drawers letting gems fall out putting alarms in the drawers it's strange
0: the gist of it is you start with a bunch of fake gems and over the course of the game you're trying to get rid of those by putting them in the box and then gems that you get out of the box which are in most cases the same gems are somehow real now that they've come out of the box Don't ask about the logic behind it. That's how jewelry works, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Just put the plastic in the magic box it becomes a gem. But yeah, basically every turn you're going to be, depending on the role you chose, you're going to be putting some gems in, taking some gems out. And after you do whatever you do, you can flip the box upside down, rotate it a couple different ways. So any attempt to remember actually (laughs) where anything is, unless maybe you're doing a two-player game, is more or less doomed to failure. I'm not sure how much strategy there is
1: (laughs) i have played with people who can remember that and it's terrifying
2: yeah you shouldn't play that game with those people unless you're also those people this is also a game that just gets much harder as you drink because like (laughs) (laughs) then you're just like whatever i'm gonna do some stuff and now look some gems fell
4: out i mean mike that's how i was playing the game to begin with i feel like the players have
2: missed the whole point within the theme of this game is that they've got a box that turns fake gems into real gems just steal the box Yes.
0: Yes. <laughs> also, Master Thieves, I think, implies a level of tactical skill, which is for most normal people not present in the game.
1: <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. The box, though, is amazing for two. Yeah, construction. Yeah, it, and... like, it was like a
0: hundred dollar game, though. It's a big, complicated wooden box that comes in a larger wooden
2: box. Yeah. Very
0: nicely put together. Just And uh,
2: the box of drawers, we disassembled it because the whole thing comes apart. The whole thing is beautifully constructed. Yeah. So the next game we're going to talk about is called Cash and Guns. Um, this was made in 2005 by Repost Productions and Ludovic Malenblok. Sorry, <laughs> but the best part about this game is that it comes with these life-size-ish foam guns because you have to point them at somebody. This is the game of Mexican standoffs. Every player gets a gun and they decide what they're going to play via cards, and those are either going to be like shoot their guns or fire blanks.
1: Or the dreaded bang, bang, bang.
2: Bang, bang, bang.
0: I always describe this as Reservoir Dogs, the board game. (laughs) The premise is basically that you've just knocked off a bank with all the other players and you're divvying up the loot and everybody wants to get more of the loot and the easiest way to do that is to shoot the other people who you're dividing it up with. So you have a set of loot and everybody decides if they're gonna spend a real bullet or a fake bullet. Then everybody simultaneously points one of their foam rubber guns at another player, and then that player has the option to back out or stay there because you don't know if they're bluffing or using a real bullet or not. They have gradually added additional expansions that have things like a shotgun, which you point between two players and it will hit both of them. There's like a Yakuza expansion that has shuriken.
1: That you throw and knock down their yeah. little standees.
0: There's bonus powers and stuff. There's one guy who, if he kills an opponent, can pick up their gun, and then he has one in each hand. <laughs> in the first edition, the foam guns were black. Uh-huh. And that
3: was a problem. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. yeah. They got
0: chided hard So now for that. they're
3: all orange. Yes, they are. They're anti-gun orange. Yes,
0: exactly. It's a fun
3: game of bluffing and right. shooting. You your have friends. mostly blanks, so mostly when people are pointing guns at you they're blanks
4: and it's right. just a lot of like, but
3: is this the time how, that, how he's, that he's How confident are you that he's out R it's idea. a
4: it's a it's a super cute game. And if yeah. you get shot enough you get eliminated, right? Yes you do, you die. But
1: it is a game where I don't think it would work with just pointing fingers because you know, you have to do the gangster sideways <laughs> thing. And without the physical props it wouldn't have been the game we all know and love.
0: There is also an interesting variant that has a hidden traitor mechanic in there. (laughs) One of the players is secretly an undercover cop. Amazing. (laughs) After each round, there's like a card you pass around the table out of sight, and the guy who's the undercover cop has the option to flip it over. And if you pull it back on the table and that side is up, then the police have been called. I don't know of anyone who's ever actually played using those rules, but it's there if you're a real fan of hidden traitors.
1: So, the next game we're going to be talking about is Shogun, 2006, published by Queen and designed by Hen, who's one of my favorite designers. No two of his games even are in the same genre. I did Show Manager, Alhambra, Timbuktu. I love Show Manager. Show is great. It yeah, is great. Totally.
3: I like Shogun a lot. The reason we're talking about Shogun and also a reason we would talk about Wallenstein, which has a very similar mechanic, is it has this tower that at the start of the game, you seat it with a bunch of cubes. And then whenever you do combat or you need to resolve something random, you take some number of your cubes and you drop them in the top. And inside the tower, there's a bunch of levels. And inside each of the levels, it's a random cardboard shape that has a bunch of different function shelves on it. And so you drop some cubes at the top and some cubes fall at the bottom. And that determines if you won the combat or not. Or that determines did the randomness go in your direction or not. Because there are so many of these little shelves, you can drop in like three blue cubes. And what comes is two yellows and a black. And you're like, well, that, that's not at all what I wanted. My cubes are in there now.
0: Yeah, and they will stay there until they come out at some future date or don't.
2: Now, this gimmick was initially seen in Wallenstein, and we've had a bit of a debate among ourselves as to whether or not Wallenstein or Shogun is the better game. I didn't see a debate. It was definitely
1: Wallenstein.
3: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> sure. I prefer Shogun personally, but, you know. Now
4: you two must fight.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, the problems I have with Shogun are that basically it's got a big, long banana-shaped or Japan-shaped, I guess it's the same thing, board. And somebody's got to be in the middle of that crap.
3: Sure, no, great. And Wallenstein granted. had
1: a much saner layout for its board since it was European, France, Germany, something.
3: I just like the theme better, personally. In my mind, like, the theme makes up for the fact that the board is a little less balanced for the center player. And I don't disagree. The board is a little less balanced for the center player. I just like the Shogun feel. I think they make a little bit better use of kind of all the components and the mechanics than Wallenstein does, personally.
1: The components are actually a little better, agreed. But man, I cannot get over being stuck no, in no, I'm that's always fair. the one in the middle. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's my that's, problem.
3: That's a personal problem. Mm-hmm. Was, get out of the middle, Frank.
1: Bust out.
0: The only objection I have to Shogun is that I am never sure if we're talking about the old Milton Bradley Shogun, which is now Samurai Swords. It's actually been re-released as Ikusa, so yet another name. The cool thing was you'd randomly determine things by these little plastic katanas, which had a variable number of diamonds on the blade, and you'd stick them in your hand and draw one out.
4: <laughs> oh. That's wonderful. That was a classic. It really was
0: a classic. That, that actually could almost be on this show for oh, that, but it was a fairly minor piece of the game.
2: <laughs> the fascinating thing about the cube tower, though, is that because everybody's cubes are in there, if two people are going at it head to head, they could throw their cubes in, and then, like, a third party's cubes could fall out, and you're just like, well, there's all of the eight cubes that I just put in there. Now, those go back into the cube tower after... The results are resolved, but still, it's it's just kind of weird. It's like, oh, I didn't know I had that many cubes in that tower. Hmm. Yeah,
0: and you know, if you've got a lot of cubes that have been put in for different things you did and haven't come out yet, the odds are with you that some of them will eventually come out.
1: Yeah.
3: yeah you're like a little bit more loaded for bear for combat. You're like, oh, three of my cubes are in the basin now. Hmm. Come, come at me, bro. Go punch them in the face. <laughs> yeah.
2: The next game we're going to talk about is a 2015 release of Potion Explosion, which was... Produced by Horrible Games and designed by Stefano Castelli, Andre Crespi, and Lorenzo Silva. This game is, in essence, a marble rack with a divider at the top. And you seed the board at the beginning of the game with a bunch of marbles of various colors. And as you play the game, you physically reach into the board to remove marbles, which will cause the ones above it to fall down, colliding with the ones below it. Because gravity... If two marbles of the same color collide, they explode. You remove those exploding marbles, which then could cause other explosions, and it just kind of builds a chain reaction as you go.
1: You have a bunch of potions in front of you that have little dots for colors. You
2: You need a particular combinations of colors to get the recipe. This game is one of the best applications of that marble rack that we could find.
1: Because it really is like a physical implementation of a bejeweled board. Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. Personally, I went with Dr. Mario, but I think that's just me.
0: You're a child of a different time. It's so true. In 2017, we had the release of Magic Maze, which is from Sit Down, or Dude Games, designed by Casper Lap. So this is basically a real-time game wherein the players are cooperatively moving a series of down-on-their-luck adventurers through a shopping mall to try and recover their lost equipment. And when I say recover, I mean steal, so they can go out and adventure again. Everyone is playing all the characters. Each player can move characters in one or two directions like Jason may be the only one that can move them north I may be the only one that can move them west Mike is the only one that can use the escalators in the mall so you have to sort of coordinate who's going to be moving where it's real time and there are sand timers in there to sort of limit your time and you have to get everybody to where they're going once one of the heroes moves onto their space then sort of the alarms go off and you have a limited amount of time to get out of the mall. The thing that makes it interesting slash challenging is that you're not allowed to talk to each other. If you've moved a guy to a corner and you're waiting for Jason to move that guy west so he can get to the next hallway, you can't say, hey, Jason, move that dude. You just have to kind of stare at him, which is why the innovation in this game, the great gimmick, is there. There is a large red pawn, probably about three inches tall, I guess, more or less like that. And the only thing you're allowed to do when you want someone to do something is to pick that pawn up and tap it in front of them staring intently at them
1: the whole time. Aggressively, tap. Aggressively yes. <laughs> Actually, the rules just say place in front of them. Nope. No, nope, that's, that's not wrong. how it works. It's, I know.
0: It's, it's a consistent <laughs> tap, 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 tap. And it's simultaneously hilarious for everyone else at the table and also terrifying because you're like, there's somebody I got to move.
4: Somebody's moving west. Where am I going? What, what are they waiting for? It's just that pawn makes the game. I think every game that I play requires that pawn. <laughs> I desperately want it in all my games because mm-hmm. I cannot stand waiting for people to take their turn. So I introduced
2: Magic Maze to my brother and sister-in-law. And while my brother really enjoyed the game, my sister-in-law, I don't think liked it as much as she kind of in the breakdown after the game was like, I don't like what you're implying with the tapping at me. <laughs> Yeah, this is one of those games that I like the game.
0: I don't know if I actually enjoy playing it because it can be very stressful. Oh, yes. The other thing I thought was great about it is they actually have on their store, you can get a t-shirt which basically just has a picture of that pawn. <laughs> and it comes with a little rule card that basically if you're wearing that shirt while playing the game, you can just pound your chest at someone instead of tapping the pawn. Jason's right. That should be in all games going forward.
2: My a special favorite is like, all right, somebody's tapping this thing at me. I'm going to make my move. No, they're still tapping yeah. at me. Now yeah. I'm just going to move something else. <laughs> oh God, they're still tapping at me. tapping <laughs> harder. to move something else. Meanwhile, you like, move something else. I'm so to, to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. like, because you can only move in one direction, You cannot undo the thing that you've just done, which means somebody else somewhere has got to undo it for you. And now somebody needs to tap at that person because you've ruined everything that person C was trying to do. And Oh, God, I've had the pawn
1: ripped out of my hand (laughs) for one of those.
0: (laughs) I can see that.
2: And the thing is, what
0: we've described here is basically scenario one. There's like 15 or so in the base game. The first one you can talk. And as it goes on, there are like one-way doors, and there's doors that only certain characters can enter and there's cameras and guards and it just gets increasingly complex and nuts.
2: My special favorite is the one that has multiple dimensions and if all of the pawns leave one dimension, you lose because without anybody to be in the second dimension it ceases to exist. It's pretty I, great. I don't think I've ever made it I that far. No, it's, yeah. it's
3: pretty far up there. There's one where you can't use the do-nothing pond. It's like look deeply into your <laughs> friend's eyes. So yeah, you can only stare intently at oh, someone. Oh, good Lord. That one is functionally impossible <laughs> as far as I can tell.
4: So the next one uh, we're going to talk about is something I actually came across in Gen Con. I was uh, sitting down playing a Solomon Kane demo, actually, and a friend of mine came up. He's like, I just found a game you need to buy. I'm like, okay, tell me more. And he's like, you get to make cardboard swords to beat people with. I'm like, done, sold, give me it. And uh, it's called Sword Crafters, released in 2018 by... uh, Adam Apples Games LLC designers
3: Ryan Lambert, Chris Newman, and Adam Renberg. Thank you, Joe.
4: Essentially, you are all playing people creating a magic sword to defend the kingdom. So you're Sword Crafters. You are Sword Crafters, in fact. The way it comes down is at the beginning of the round... You have a layout of different cardboard pieces that represent the different sides of the sword. And on your turn, you choose a slice of them and separate those tokens from each other. And then the next person does the same thing, and the next person does the same thing. And then you go and pick those pile of whatever's left, right? So essentially, you've got, let's say, a grouping of four different sets of tiles. You're going to select them, and those have to go into your sword. But as you progress through the game, you're building out essentially a three-dimensional sword. You start with a a hilt and then you just slot in each of these cardboard pieces, and at the end of the game you get judged on the quality of the sword, how magical the sword is, based on how many jewels are in it, how long the sword is. With the Kickstarter exclusive stuff, you even get to put tips on the swords. It's ridiculous. Like It's literally just a very, very simple. So are the tips like put pointy end in other men? No, but they do have gems of their own that can count towards your set collection bonuses. But yeah, at the end of it, you have a satisfying little like three-dimensional cardboard sword that's surprisingly sturdy, and you can, in fact, beat a person with it.
2: I'm all for playing a game that ends with me just being able to beat other players with my creation.
4: You would like this game.
2: So we've run through
0: our main list of gimmicks that we think are great. One of the games that we were gonna mention as kind of an honorable mention is Keyforge. Basically, the gimmick is that every deck is unique, the names are really what make it awesome. Jason has a couple great examples. In fact, several people are now Googling examples uh, and just laughing hysterically. Think. So,
2: so the names are generated randomly by a algori- computer algorithm.
1: That makes them algorithmically generated. Ooh. Definitely not random.
0: No. no.
2: Sure. I feel like it was
0: fed a bunch of first edition D&D character sheets and just took name components
1: and put them in here. What they do? Collect a bunch of trapper keepers. Yeah, of probably, yeah, yeah. Jason, would you like to walk <laughs> us okay, through a couple? Okay, this
3: is my favorite. Titan Flyer, the Farmer of Racism. Oh yes, <laughs>
4: yes, yep, yep. I ran into that one. This is actually a deck I physically have in my hand. This is the probably the most ridiculous one I got. Galvapus the Professor of the Slum. So I like that one. That's great. Plus. It can't compete with Wang, the Suddenly Bruised. <laughs> or the emperor that pays for boys or wow. oh. there's titan flare the one joe found uh, the boy who basically headbutts heaven that's a good one <laughs>
1: that is pretty it great sounds
4: hard. better in chinese <laughs> I'm sure oh here's my favorite general bone rider cult <laughs> <laughs>
0: My question is, do we have evidence that these are actual deck so th- there names are, and not th-
4: just things that people wrote? There are pictures and people have them still wrapped in plastic. I don't mm. know if this, I mean, it's entirely possible. Like, who knows, right? Up, yeah, like, because the internet. Fantasy Flight did issue apologies when they first released this for not um, scrutinizing the words they put into these decks as well as they should have.
0: Yeah. When you have procedurally generated things, sometimes you get results you don't want.
2: This has also been a theme with Fantasy Flight recently where they are trying to make templates of games that a computer can go in and fill in the blanks because we've recently been talking off-air about their other game, Discovery.
1: Discovery Lands Unknown? Is which has Discover Lands
2: Unknown. a very similar gimmick to it where it's like, hey, here are all of the components that could be in the game. Computer, pick some and we'll box it for you. I'm not sure how I feel about that as a gimmick or really just as a game. It's tough with that one because... In theory, there's supposed
0: to be some sort of story and you can only do so much with a story that is just randomly generated by pieces of things. Right.
1: Except that, you know, a lot of games or computer games just have random events and things thrown together and they kind of tend to create some story like things. If anything, I think that just trimming down the number of things for an adventure exploration game means that it's got a pretty limited shelf life.
2: I'm going to be interested to see what else they do with this gimmick, but I think it needs a few more iterations before I'm really invested as a player.
0: Yeah, with KeyForge in particular, and to some extent a Lens Unknown, I really feel like it's... We're throwing this out there as a proof of concept to see how people feel about this,
4: and if we think there's interesting stuff we can do from it, we'll evolve out from there. Mm-hmm. What was fascinating, when I first encountered Keyforge was at Gen Con, and I was in line for the Transformers card game at the time, talking to a woman that runs her own game store. And she asked me about it specifically. She's like, I run this game store. I don't know if people who play card games are going to want a pre-generated deck. Like, a lot of the fun of competitive card games is building your own deck and modifying it and adding to it. These things, they have their own unique card backs. You can't change them. And she was really torn as to how much to purchase for her store because she wasn't sure it was going to take off. Meanwhile, like it apparently sold like hotcakes. The freaking base set has been sold out for months. Like you can't find it anywhere and people are just gobbling them up. Like there's a lot of really strong fans for it. And like one thing I heard that kind of makes sense to me is it's a great convention game, right? It's like, "Hey, I'm at a convention with a lot of friends. Let's all go buy a deck and we can just screw around while we're waiting in line." Yeah, and I think that's the idea behind
0: it is that it's a game for people that don't want to put in a lot of the prep time that would be required to play something like Magic. I think what this teaches us is that people really like to have things that no one else has. (laughs) Which is something that drives a
3: lot of Kickstarter stuff.
4: Yeah, they just need to put the word exclusive on it.
3: Exactly. exactly. (laughs) The boy who plows for the empress. (laughs) Is she married to the Emperor that pays for boys? Because I can see there's a I whole, there were
1: is a a story. whole story here that
3: we're just missing out on. So the thing I've, I've noticed, first off, there's a bunch of now banned... <laughs> words? Na- words. Well, he like banned deck names that they released in the initial release that are like, oh, no. you can't these use decks. these in tournament play. Right? They're not allowed in tournament play because they're so bad. Like The Emperor who pays for boys cannot be used in tournament I play. I think that's probably the best they, deck out do there. Do they send that person a free replacement so deck? So if you... If you send it back to them, <laughs> oh. they will send you two decks. Oh, okay. But mm. they would like it back, please. Because <laughs> they do not want evidence ob- that this I ever I think existed. the obvious answer is... Nope, nope. <laughs> nope. I, own the who pays for, I own the emperor who pays for boys. <laughs> F you. So some of these has been going on eBay for quite a lot of money if they're particularly ridiculous because people want to own the particularly ridiculous ones.
4: Oh, man. I mean, like,
2: I would probably pay several hundred dollars to own the emperor who pays for boys just because it's so dumb. So I think what this shows us, though, is that our feeble human brains cannot even begin to comprehend the story that this computer is laying out before us.
1: <laughs> oh, no, I think we can comprehend. Yeah, that's <laughs> the problem. So
3: I found an a eBay thing, which is Keyforge Rare First Print Display Boxes, Chance for Rare Band Names decks. So there's <laughs> Unforged <laughs> box in the Keyforge. Hey, these are the first print run. They might have ridiculous <laughs> names. Who knows? <sighs> Why don't you pay $300 for them? Wow, really? Uh, because $300? I have a brain. Yes, $300. <laughs> nope. Because they may have rare band names in them. There's actually a number of Ebays, which are like chance for rare band names. This is fascinating. That's because people this is a know how thing. to
2: market to people. Also, gambling
3: exists.
0: Yep. So. Yep. Yeah. We did have an entry on our list here for Seafall, but we're not going to talk about it here because it is by its very nature a spoiler. So we're going to be doing a Legacy Games episode in the near future, which will have spoiler tags and timestamps all over it to avoid this kind of thing. For right now, Seafall, while some of us have problems with it as a game, True. did have one particularly clever gimmick in it that is revealed later in the game that we want to talk about at some future point.
2: And that entire episode will just be wrapped in caution tape. Yeah, For spoilers. Exactly. Like, oh boy. We're going
3: to send, it's going to be great. We're going to like send Jason out of the room at times. It's going to be amazing.
1: The one honorable mention I can suggest is Ballaroo. From 1936, I believe that's by Parker Brothers. It's, we cut it from the original list because it's not really a game. It's a gambling activity. In the game, you have 12 ping pong balls attached by short leashes to a set of tees. Everyone gets cards numbered with those particular balls. And then you have a top spinning in the middle, made of lead, because 1936.
0: I'm sure it's perfectly safe.
1: Totally. And then a rubber ball hanging from a chain at the top and then a tiny bump on the top And you spin it, and the ball goes flying wildly, incredibly wildly, slamming the ping pong balls several feet in every direction as it kills them.
4: That's why you want the leashes,
0: which sometimes work.
4: Yeah. It was very astonishing the first time it triggered. I was like, oh, okay, because I released the ball, and I didn't release the rubber ball very high up. I was like, oh, I did it wrong. Then it hit that little nub on the top. Yeah, when
0: that top imparts some momentum, that thing goes all over the you can hear the sort of astonished laughter in
4: the video that we're going to post as part of this because it's a little bit nuts. I did learn that I'm amazing at that game. Yeah. <laughs> I want both games of that. Yeah, no, it's super through, impressive. Through all of my skill and yes, talents. Exactly.
0: <laughs> there was a re-release in, I think, the... 67. 67, yeah, yeah, that replaced the ping-pong ball with cardboard standees and Ew, the top with a little motor. Boring. It's lame.
2: Yeah, the game is lame without a chance of death. Exactly I know, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: I was going to mention Chateau Roquefort, which we'll probably talk about a little bit more if we do a kid's game version of this, but it's actually a game that I think works pretty well for adults. Basically, it's a little multi-level board on top of the box where you are moving your mice around trying to collect matching pairs of cheese, and there are little tiles that you can slide in that will move all the other tiles in that row and sometimes reveal pits that the mice will fall into. It's slightly a pain to put together, but it's actually a pretty clever game. I know a couple friends who have children that have used it to introduce the idea of, you know, action points and planning for future turns and that kind of thing. So a good game, despite the cute mice and cheese functionality.
1: And definitely let us know in feedback and comments if you want to see a kid's version of this or not. Sandy would love to send us through a massive wave of 60s ideal toy games.
2: (laughs) It was amazing the number of games. Gimmick games that were marketed for kids over the years. So it's just like all of them.
0: Yeah, I mean, functionally for a lot of those, you come with a gimmick and that's the game. Yeah, mousetrap anyone. (laughs) So if we did an episode on children's games, we would probably make a special effort not to curse during the podcast. So you could actually listen to it with kids if for some reason you wanted to do that. So uh, thanks, everybody. If there's any great gimmicks that we've missed and you want to tell us about them, please put in some comments. We always love to get reviews on iTunes. They help us a lot. Tell your friends about us. You know, tell people you don't especially like about us. We promise we'll be back to a more traditional evolution of a game mechanic thing soon. If you want to give us an opinion on what you'd like to see, please go to the website, vote in our poll. We'll be talking at you again soon. Bye. 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 So please come check out our website, which is AscentOfBoardGames.com, or you can email us at AscentOfBoardGames at gmail.com. Our Facebook account, because Facebook is weird, is Facebook.com slash AscentBoardGames. They don't like the word of in there, apparently. Twitter is AscentOfGames. Uh, apparently AscentOfBoardGames is too long for a Twitter username. We try to be consistent, but the internet won't let us. Discord, though, is discord.ascentofboardgames.com, or you can find us on Instagram, which we don't have much on yet, but we're working on it, at instagram.com slash ascentofboardgames. Those are long and inconsistent and a pain to transcribe, so your best bet is probably just to go to our website, which, once again, is ascentofboardgames.com, and just click on the links there. We've got a poll for what we should do for our next episodes. We've got information on us. You can even see pictures of us and recognize that we all have great faces for podcasting. And um, let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin McLeod via incompetech.com. Full details can be found at ascentofboardgames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening.
2: It's held together by, like, earth diodes. Magnets? Is that what we call those today? Sure. Mike, what do you do
0: for a living again?
1: Uh, science. (laughs) Right, just science. Got it. (laughs) Uh.